Welcome to the Coach Cahill Show, an audio masterclass on how to move the needle on your performance and impact as an athlete, parent, or coach. Here's your host, Coach Cahill. Yeah, I think, um, you know, co- coaching is something that's kind of been in my DNA, I think, since I was younger. I have, uh, I'm the oldest of three boys, and so I kind of feel like I've always had a lot of younger guys around and, and I was like I was like the test kid right like I was the kid uh, that didn't know anything about the recruiting process my family didn't really know anything about the recruiting process so I kind of went through it first um, but you know growing up just being around all the uh, my my younger brother's friends and you know just passing on my experience I think coaching kind of came naturally that way and uh, I really knew I wanted to be a coach when I was in high school and I kind of finished high school and moved on to college because I didn't have a great high school football coach. Um, he was a good guy, good person, uh, but I don't think he understood what it took to hold kids accountable and really build a, a great culture. Yep. And um, the kind of the tip of the iceberg for me was, you know, when the recruiting season started after my senior year, this was back when they, they still recruited kids that were seniors. Um, <laughs> they, uh, he just really didn't help. He didn't help that we had several schools that came by and, you know, wanted my film and just never got it to him. And uh, I was just kind of like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be a high school head coach someday and I'm going to help my kids. And that's kind of how it started. Now, I didn't really get into it right away. I, I played arena football after I got done with college. And so I was kind of flirting with, do I do this deal with athletic training? Because I, at the time I was living in Eastern, excuse me, Eastern Washington, I was playing arena football, but I had a, a job running an athletics training facility. Um, and it wasn't until 2007, uh, my best friend, uh, he coached at Linfield at the time. That's where we both played. And he, he kind of called me after we were, we were done playing the arena season. I had, I had a season up in Alaska of all places. And he was like, Hey, you know, our running backs coach who actually coached me, he said, he's, he's leaving. He's going to take another gig. You know, would you be interested? You know, and coming down and coaching, I'm like, heck yeah, let's do it. So I kind of got into it. And, and again, it was a, kind of a natural thing. It felt, it just felt right. And, uh, you know, I, after two years at Linfield, I actually got a, a GA job down in southeastern Oklahoma. Did that for a year and it turned into a full-time gig. So that really, you know, if you ask how coaching found me, it, it, it's pretty much as simple as that. You know, one of my best friends asked if I'd be interested in coming home to, to my alma mater and, and, and off we go. Yeah, no, it's it's fun. It's such a windy road. I, I think, I think, I think especially a lot of parents don't appreciate how, <laughs> or or kids really, they don't they don't appreciate how hard it is to to stick around as a coach for a long time. No doubt, no doubt. It's definitely not as easy as showing up on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and the games are honestly. I think game day is probably the, the easiest part for a lot of coaches. I mean, most really, you have you're a full-time recruiter and like sometimes it probably feels like you coach part-time. Um, sure. Yeah. I, During the season, it's not that way, but yeah. the rest of the year. Yeah. No, no question. You know, it's like uh, recruiting is such a big, you know, emphasis in, in today's game. Cause if you don't got guys, you don't got wins, you know? <laughs> so um, I think that, that, that you're hit, you hit it right on the head for sure. And, and what do you think is what, you know, what are, what are parents and players getting wrong about recruiting what's what's the biggest thing they're getting wrong you know in my opinion i think twitter and and other social media has just created a situation where they think every kid is getting offered by every school and i think 
where parents go wrong is they compare their son or, you know, their, their own journey to other people's journeys. And it's really difficult to compare someone who is, you know, 6'4", 220 pounds and can run with someone that's 5'10", you know, 200 pounds and plays linebacker for their high school. I just think it's, it's this situation where if you played with someone or played against someone that has offers, you feel like you should be offered when it's really just, it's not that simple, right? The evaluation process is so different for each and every individual kid. And I think that's really where parents and where uh, parents and players get it wrong. They just, they compare their own journey with other people's journeys. And I think that is, that has just created a situation where a lot of people become really impatient. You know, they don't have an offer by their soft end of the sophomore year and they're panicking. And it's like, guys, you know, unless you're a one percenter, that's not going to happen for you. And, and you know what? That's also, that is okay. That is more than okay. That doesn't make you a worse football player. That doesn't make you a poor prospect. That just means your journey's different. And I think the, the second thing that I think parents and players get really confused about is all conference and statistics. Those things to most college recruiters are very secondary. They, you know, they, they are evaluating the, the film. And, you know, like I tell kids all the time, that's going to be your most important bargaining chip. If you have great film and you've done a really good job in your program, you'll have a chance, you know. And if you, if you don't have a bunch of people, you know, recruiting you, well, it's probably less about um, them than it is about you. And sometimes I think that's a hard reality for kids to take on is that, hey, maybe my tape's just not as good as the college coaches want it to be, you know, to be a legitimate prospect. And then I think the, the, the second thing is not every kid, and let's just be honest, most of vast majority of kids are not power five players. And that does not mean they're bad football players. That just means they're not power five guys. And I think at, you know, having coached, I, I've coached at every level. I've coached at high school, I've coached division three, division two, II, division one. And there's a lot of really good high school football players that are just not power five prospects. And I think that's the reality that uh, a lot of families can't see while they're in it. Uh, but a lot of them end up seeing it once they go to, you know, a division two or a division three or NAIA school and they go, Whoa, there's a lot of really good players here. Yeah. You know, and I think, so I think that, you know, twofold, just long-winded way of saying, you know, kind of twofold that I think social media has just created a, a unrealistic expectations. And I really think that way too often they compare their son or, or their, you know, or, or their own journey to other people's. And that's just not fair. And I don't think it's reality. Yeah, no, and and I think the and the Twitter algorithms are only getting better. I mean, the 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 whole app is designed to just feed you what you you want to see. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it's I think the recruiting is always you know recruiting has always been going on for decades, but it's being covered and looked at in a way that you know we've never seen before, and definitely not in a yes. way that's healthy. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and it's like I always joke with a lot of college coaches that Twitter's the, the best and worst thing that ever happened to football. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what are some pieces of advice you might give to a uh, player or parent who feels kind of confused or, or frustrated uh, or, or maybe, yeah, or maybe so. some advice for like how to better use Twitter, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think really I'll focus on the first question. I, I think 
for for most kids, I think they need to ask themselves, what do they really want with football? Are they are they into it because they really love playing the game and they love everything that comes with it? And, you know, my uh, my brother Tracy, you know, runs the uh, Ford Sports Performance out here in Washington, one of the more successful. Um, you know, seven on seven programs, as well as just athletic training facilities. He trains a bunch of guys in the NFL and obviously a bunch of power five football players and then high school, everywhere in between high school, all the way, you know, to power five football players and guys in the NFL. And one thing he says all the time is you can't cheat the grind. And, and I think if a player truly loves football, truly loves the grind of football, they'll go where they can play and it, and it doesn't matter what the brand name looks like. It doesn't matter what the logo looks like. And I think that's where kids really have to ask themselves, do I love football or do I love recruiting? Cause it's not the same thing. You know, I I've seen that um, at our level where there's, you know, very talented athletes that they kind of like the recruiting aspect and what football gives to them more than they actually love football. And I think that's, that's the problem that, that we're going to have in most, situations yeah that's a great line do you and i yeah i I remember having that conversation with uh, a a player that i worked with and uh, a couple weeks ago and they were like well what's the difference and you know i had to think about it but you know recruiting is like it's like one big it's like speed dating almost you get this weird it's like moment it's like there's anguish and agony and like oh do they like me or not and then when a coach shows interest i mean it's like you know some kids are so um, you know, so uh, desperate for validation that like they'll turn any maybe into a yes, <laughs> you know? Right, um, right. And I guess like what, what is what's probably more frustrating for for players might be, and I get this question a lot: is how do I tell if a coach is is genuinely interested in me? Um, I, I guess could you kind of talk through how you could suss how maybe players and families could better suss out or kind of gauge, uh, you know, interest from a school? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the biggest thing, and when I, cause I coached high school football for four years and, uh, the advice I would give our parents all the time was, are the coaches calling you? Are the coaches reaching out to you or are you reaching out to the coaches? And that's something that, uh, you know, in our profession, it's kind of been, uh, almost an unwritten rule that, you know, you, you, you should contact all these guys that, that are, you know, on rivals and on two, four, seven, but it's really kind of changed over the last five years where it's like, Hey, they're not going to spend time recruiting a guy unless they're really interested. And I think, you know, that they're interested when the contact is coming from them and it's genuine, you know, it's genuine when they're actually having conversations with you. If, if a recruit is reaching out to a coach and a coach isn't responding, they're not recruiting yet. Right. If you're getting letters in the mail, but you have not actually heard from a coach either by DM, text or phone call, you're just on a list. You're, you're not actually being recruited by that school. And so I think that's a that's a major red flag for a family is if they're getting a bunch of mail from the, a school, but they've never heard from the school. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think I think that's probably the the thing that the best advice I could give to uh, you know a, a family or their or an, a- an athlete or their family is, you know you're being recruited when the coaches are contacting you, yeah. And I think that's that's something to really be aware of. And it's it's one of those things too. You, you want to make sure you're being contacted by coaches, um, analysts, 
right? Not necessarily just, you know, someone that works in the recruiting department. Right. right? I think, I think those things are very different because the guys in the recruiting department, they, they're, they're trying to spread a wide net, trying to gauge interest, trying to get people to, you know, come visit and those type of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting recruited, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's weirdly similar to, to dating, right? Like if they're yeah. not, they're not going to go on a date with you if they're not talking to you. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, and, and so uh, let's, and college is kind of tough because you're, you know, as a high school kid now, because you've got, you know, COVID happened, the transfer portal is going on. Um, I, how do you think, I guess we can talk, stop there for a second. Um, how do you, I guess two questions, how do you think COVID has impacted recruiting for the next couple of years? And then how do you think the transfer portal has impacted recruiting for the next couple of years? Yeah, you know, I'll start with COVID. I think, I think COVID just created a situation where guys are coming back. So there's just not as many roster spots, mm-hmm. right? So I think all of recruiting is a numbers game, but what COVID did was exacerbate that problem. Because now we have guys that have an extra year, whether that's an extra senior year or an extra junior year, whatever you want to slice it, whatever they were in 2020, they are in 2021. Mm-hmm. And so I think the guys that it has really hurt the most is the guys in the class of 2022, class of 2023. And that's really the two class that will be impacted the most. But that tri- trickle down effect could continue to happen depending on the players that are currently on campus, mm-hmm. right? If we have guys that, were freshmen last year, but they're also freshmen again this year, and they redshirt, right? Now you don't have as many needs if you're that particular program. So I think COVID has just really, again, exacerbated the numbers issue. And then the transfer portal, I think I think the transfer portal is good and bad. I think, uh, in my opinion, I think kids should have the ability to transfer. I don't think we should be holding kids hostage for a decision they made when they were 16 or 17 years old. I really don't. Um, now, I do I think that kids should be able to transfer freely at any point and as many times as they want? Absolutely not. You know, I think that just teaches them um, some bad character traits moving forward in their personal lives, right? If if things aren't working out, run. You know, and I don't, I don't think that's a good a, a thing in any, by any stretch. Um, but long story short, in terms of the transfer portal, it's really, um, it's relative because I still think coaches are going to go recruit high school players. You know, I know I've seen a lot on Twitter about, well, we haven't seen as many coaches in the buildings these days. Well, I think those coaches are also aren't understanding this is not a contact period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're not, we're, we're not, you know what I mean? We're, we, we're all limited on the evaluations we can have. And so if you use your evaluations to go actually see these kids play, they're probably not coming to schools right after the season because A, most of us are still playing and B, they're not, they're not going to use their evaluations now because they probably already used them, mm-hmm. right? And so, so for a lot of schools, those, that, uh, that month of December when the contact period actually opens and it's out of the evaluation period, you get to the contact period, that's when you're going to see the, the coaches back in schools. And I think high school coaches, high school players just need to have a little bit of patience because <laughs> every, everybody's trying to work through their roster. They're trying to deal with the transfer portal, both good and bad. But at the same time, uh, I, I don't believe that it's it's like um, it, it hasn't had the impact that it might look like from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still think that as long as you have room on your roster, you're going to want high school athletes. 
because quite frankly, you just have a little bit more to work with. You have a little bit more time with them. You have a little bit more time to develop them, um, depending on your program. Now, obviously, there are some programs that rely heavily on the transfer portal because they need help now. So it's really relative. You know, I think it's, again, I think it's a good thing. I think it's also a bad thing in a lot of ways. But overall, for high school kids and high school coaches, they just have to have a little bit of patience and, and, and trust the process. I know that's a, a very uh, cliche term, but they got to trust the process. If, if you're a really good football player and you can play Division One football, Division Two football, Division Three football, they're still going to find you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I think, yeah, there, there's definitely been some – uh, talk of oh you know the transfer portal is creating an army of mercenary college football players and you have like these nomadic college football players that have transferred four or five times um but you know i like you said it, it's almost like you know i think it just depends on how the different programs want to integrate the transfer portal into their recruiting philosophy yeah um, yeah you know and i know it, I, I know yeah. washington has been a little bit different for us because you know, we'll, we'll use the transfer portal for very specific positions, right? Mm -hmm. If we, we know we need someone that has experience, then, you know, we're not a big transfer school in general. Well, we haven't been in the past. Um, but, you know, for this season, for example, we lost like seven or eight kids to the portal, but you know, we also got four or five kids that uh, we needed that were very position specific. And, you know, those, most of those guys are helping us right now. Right. right. And so I think, like you kind of alluded to, it really depends on the philosophy and how the coaching staff executed, executes that philosophy. And I do still believe that for the most part, you want high school kids. You want guys that you can develop in your system that don't have bad habits from another one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I definitely think that it's a double-edged sword, but at the same time, I think, like you said, if, if, if a program manages, manages, manages it correctly, then they shouldn't have this influx of transfers. And I also think for college athletes, they need to be smart when they enter the transfer portal. You know, I've told several of my former players um, that either I coach in high school or at Simon Fraser that if you're going to enter the transfer portal, you're, you're not entering the portal to be re-recruited. That is not what the transfer portal is for. The transfer portal is for people that have a plan. You know, I think for any college athlete that's looking to transfer, you should have a plan. You should have an idea of about five or six schools that possibly recruited you out of high school. And you need to make contact with those schools. Now, obviously, they won't be able to contact you back until you're in the portal, but you can contact those coaches. That's the thing. That is that is the thing. They can still contact the coach. And if there's genuine interest, then, then you get in the portal. I don't think you get in the portal to get interest. And I think that's where a lot of, uh, of college athletes have made, made that mistake. And they're still sitting in the portal. <laughs> yeah well and, and yeah there, and there's way more people in the portal than there probably are going to be spots um yeah i mean for, there's a guy um uh coach Payne. he's on twitter i'll find his account but he he's really big he's big in the juco basketball world he was telling me for for college basketball there's two thousand guys that were in the transfer wow. portal last year and that's wow. you know that's a sport where only five guys get to start those yeah <laughs> um yeah not a lot of room not no lot of room. no not and i like the point you said about you know, the transfer portal is not re-recruitment. I mean, so many times, um, you know, a kid goes to college freshman year and it doesn't, I hear this a lot. Well, if I don't start, if I don't start, I'm just going to transfer, <laughs> you know, and you've yeah. got, you've got kids going, excuse me, to, to start their, their first preseason already justifying 
transferring if it doesn't work out, which is never going to really work out. You're kind of setting yourself up for self-sabotage. No question. And I think that's what kids find is that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And, you know, a lot of times if, if you weren't good enough to play at school, A, you, you may not be able to be good enough to, to play at school B, right? And I think, you know, for a lot of guys, if you have a plan, especially if you're a power five guy and you have a plan, you know, and you feel like you, you have some places that you can go, execute the plan. You know, but I just think if you're just like, hey, I'm going to go into the portal to, to get re-recruited, I just, I just think that's a big mistake. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and, you're, and then you're there kind of twiddling your thumbs wondering, like, why, you know, why, why isn't this working out? And then, yeah, and then, and then you know, with COVID, it's like, you know, geez, the, the spots are so limited, especially if you're trying to plan a yes. conference with a roster limit like, you know, Ivy, yeah. NESCAC, or yeah. Patriot League. Right, um, exactly. I guess how did like, – there was – I think there was a Sports Illustrated article a uh, couple – it was like in the summertime, but it was – the whole p- – part of the article was basically the thesis was that no college football roster is safe anymore that coaches have kind of lost their their hold on making sure that that teams stay together because the transfer uh, rules were relaxed um wh- how do you su- how do you propose or kind of go about countering the the ease that a tra- that the transfer portal can kind of break up a roster yeah i mean i think for me um, you know, I look at it very simply as you got to be honest with your players. You know, I think, I think a lot of times coaches are not necessarily forthcoming with a, what kids need to improve on to play. Right. And then B the reasons why they're not playing currently, mm-hmm. because obviously those two things go together. And I really believe that kids would much rather you tell them the truth, even if you don't, if, even if they don't like what they're hearing then give them the runaround. And so I think a lot of times if you create a culture where you're not being forthcoming, a kid doesn't trust you. And when kids don't trust you, they're much more likely to leave. So I think if you can build a culture of trust within your program, um, you're going to, you're going to have a lot better chance to keep guys and, and help them see the bigger picture. Now there's always going to be four or five guys every year that they, they may never play for you. And those coaches need to be honest with them about that. Because then that's where I think the, there is the positive part of the transfer portal. Because now those kids can go find a place that they're actually going to have an opportunity to get on the field. And I think that's why I, I truly I kind of I'm not like down on the transfer portal like a lot of coaches are, because I do think it's fair for these kids that are they're never going to have an opportunity to play. They, they should have that opportunity, and they shouldn't be held hostage just because of a decision they made as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, long story short, I think. The way you build uh, your uh, a good culture in, in any way, right? Not just with relationship to the transfer portal, is by building trust. And really, the only way to build trust with these guys is to be honest with them. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be brutally honest with them, uh, whether whether they like what you're saying or not. They'll they'll thank you later for for telling them the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess as a coach, you're always. I mean, most people get into coaching because they're they're optimists by nature. They want to see the best in the kids that they work with. Um, but it's also tough to like balance. I always struggle with this sometimes when I'm coaching is like, you know, I, I never want to douse out a kid's dream or a spark, but I also want the kid to have a strong sense of reality. Um, yeah. how do yeah. you, how do you kind of balance not want to crush a kid's dream while being brutally honest with them? Yeah, I think, I think you got to give them tangible mm-hmm. points of improvement. 
you know, you can't say, well, hey, I think you're doing a good job, but you know, you're, you're just not doing a great job. I don't think you can do that. I think you got to say, Hey, for example, we're talking about defensive linemen. You've got to do a better job getting your hands, you know, striking at your aiming points. You need to do a better job of setting the edge. Those tangible points that they can go to practice and work on are a must. If they don't have those things, then they're always wondering why they're not playing. Mm. Right. And I know that that was something I preached very hard when I was at SFU was to my coaches was guys, if guys come to ask you about their playing time, then you need to tell them exactly what they need to work on. Because if they can do those things in theory, they should play. Right. And I also made sure that they told me those things because, you know, innately they're going to go to the head coach. Right. And I wanted to make sure that I could communicate the specific things they needed to improve on to give them a better chance to play. Mm. Right. And so I think that very specific feedback is an absolute must to number one, gaining trust, but number two, just creating a culture where the kids believe in what you're, what you're saying and have an understanding that they, if they do these things, they will have an opportunity to play. Yeah. I I remember I was a a kicker and, and punter in college and, you know, talk about a position where coaches don't, you know, always kind of know the ins and outs of it. But I remember right. that that was one of the most, you know, hands down frustrating parts of, of football was just, you know, you, you know, you're not playing, but then when you go to talk to the coach about why you're not playing, you know, and you get that they're, they're, you're like beyond the bottom of their to-do list as a punter, but you know, then you get kind of like the vague run around. Well, you know, we, we just like to see more pop on the ball. And then, and then you're like, <laughs> what's that mean? Well, yeah. what the hell does that mean? <laughs> um, right. Right. How do I do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's not just, you know, I use that as an example, but, uh, you know, coaches, they get, you know, they they do 10 times what they're paid for and they got so much going on. I think that's a good reminder. And it doesn't even have to be a lot. It could just be one specific tangible thing. Um, yeah. because if you can give a kid something to chew on, okay, that, that's cool. I, I can work with that, but it's kind of like when they feel like they're in this, you know, uh, playing time purgatory, that's when the agony sets in. That's when they start thinking, yep. and then you check that transfer portal out. Yeah, um, no question. No question. And, and so I guess, um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. It's been like a half hour. Um, how do you, oh, you're good. I mean, how do you, um, so one of the things I also do is, so I was a high school teacher for a long time, but uh, now I work as, um, helping to kind of pilot this program, uh, kind of on leadership with a guy from the wall street journal. He wrote this book called uh, the captain class. And so it's basically the whole premise is like your, your most talented players are not always your best leaders. Um, but, but we, but we are kind of conditioned to think so, right? Like you look at, um, it's an interesting book. So like the guy's name is Sam Walker. And, uh, there's a chapter basically talking about why Michael Jordan was uh, the best player of all time, but not the best captain of all time. And of course there's all this flack, but what really helped Michael Jordan kind of unlock his superstar power was when Scottie Pippen came on the team. And then that kind of freed up Michael Jordan to be the superstar while Pippen did all the, you know, kind of the soft, you know, connection work that you had to do to keep the team together. Um, yeah. I guess for you, like, how do you go about identifying team captains or, or leadership on your, I mean, leadership is talked about so much. It's like nauseating with college football. Um, but I, I guess I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like what, what's your approach to, to coaching leadership? Is it something that can be coached or is it something that your players largely come to you with? 
No, I, I, I definitely think leadership is a skill. Uh, I think leadership is something that you can improve on. You can, um, you can have a base level, but also improve on it. Uh, obviously, there's some people that are a little bit more naturally born with leadership skills than others, but you can certainly build them. Uh, a couple things we did that I've done in the past in terms of like captains and things like that, um, we, we didn't really look at it as necessarily captains. We had a, what, was, what we called a leadership council. And it was kind of one of those things where you had to have a certain, it was like a certain criteria that you had to have. You had to, like, I can't remember exactly everything off the top of my head, but I know one of the things was like, you had to like engage in, you know, community service event that you created. You know, we had things where you had to maintain a certain GPA, not that all leaders need to be smart, but, and it wasn't like an unbelievable, um, you know, standard. It was like essentially like a, you know, 2.5 GPA. We felt like, if you're handling your business in school, that that shows a lot of leadership uh, ability. And then and then from there, you know, we, we had a pool. So now you, you had a pool of people that wanted to be leaders. Mm. And from that pool, we allowed our our players to choose from that pool, because I think too often if you just open it up and say, all right, we're going to have X amount of seniors, X amount of juniors, X amount of freshmen, you guys vote on. them. Well, normally the most popular guys get the vote. Right. Mm. The, the guys that everybody likes, they get the votes. But when you when you condense that pool and say, hey, these are the guys that have exhibited leadership qualities, these guys have done things that we're asking them to do in terms of showing and illustrating leadership, you choose from these guys. That, to me, allowed us to get a little bit better um, quality in terms of guys that were in that room. Because at the end of the day, that leadership council was was critical because to me it was the bridge between what's happening in the locker room and what's happening in the coaches' offices. Mm. You know, because sometimes if you don't have a pulse on what's happening in the locker room, you can lose it. And I've always said this: if you're a head football coach, really head coach at any in any sport, and really most leadership positions, once you lose the locker room, there isn't really you really can't get it back. Mm. You know, it's really one of those things where you're not going to get that thing back. So we really wanted to create a an avenue to to make sure there was that direct pipeline, that direct communication from the locker room to the coaches' offices. And the way, again, the way we allowed our kids to choose those leaders was from people that actually had exhibited leadership qualities in the past, mm-hmm. right? And so I think if you can, you know, if you if you can be committed enough to, because it wasn't like a crazy standard, right? There was like three or four things that that you had to do, right, to be considered a leader. And once you do those things, now your peers can determine, all right, well, this is the pool. These are the guys we feel like will represent us the best. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I mean, I think so much of the time the, the captains are just so arbitrarily picked. It's, it's like, no doubt. It's like, I don't think the, having the coaches select them off the bat usually works nope. out well. But then if you have a popularity, nope. con- especially in high school, I mean, yep. that, that's tough too because you're never going to win against peer pressure and public voting no. for high school. No, not at all. In high school, we actually, when I coach, cause I coached four years as a high school head coach. It's the only time I ever spent as a high school coach. But during that time, we didn't even have like captains for the year. We really did captains on a week to week basis for, especially for games. Uh, the way we looked at it was like, we wanted to see guys exhibiting leadership skills throughout the week. And then we chose the captains as coaches based on that interaction, based off the, the basically that I know it's, it's not necessarily data, but 
for lack of a better term, the data that we saw throughout the week, mm. guys that were exhibiting those skills that we uh, we believe people would follow as, as leaders. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think in you know, really, it's just a set of behaviors that you're looking for from your, from your guys. No question. You know, no question. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like some of the some of the roles that you know the the research has found is you know you, every team has a has a class clown, right? But but a mm -hmm. lot of times you know you need that Joker to like break tension and help guys refocus when in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. And you got your Ray Lewis's and um, yeah, it's a cool book. Um, so I, I guess you know for you, how do you um, how do you make it kind of treat each player as an individual while not kind of making exceptions for team-wide culture? And I, I think that's like a core dilemma that a lot of coaches usually face. Yeah, I think for me, it was pretty simple. We had very uh, simple set of rules. We really did. Um, it, let me see if I can find them. I know, let's see. Um, gosh, we had five rules. Yeah, so number one was protect the team. Right. And that's kind of an overarching theme. Right. We, but we would we would give them specific examples. Like if you're not passing your classes, you're not really protecting the team because you're not going to be able to play. Right. Right. If you're doing things off the field and having, you know, behavioral or disciplinary issues, you're not protecting the team. Right. So that was like our number one rule that kind of encompassed a lot. You know, we talked about being on time when time's involved. We talked about um, competing and we talked about being coachable. That was really kind of our team set of team rules and. And what we try to do the best job of is never treating kids the same, always treating kids fairly. Mm. And to me, that is like kind of my coaching philosophy in general. You know, I, I know that if you ask any player that ever played for me, I'm, I'm one of those coaches that didn't just care about you as a football player. I cared about you as a person. I cared about your family. I wanted to know what you were about outside of the, 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 the you know, the, the hundred yards that we, that we spend uh, time on. Uh, each day during the season. You know, I, I really prided myself on developing relationships and I felt like I could get each individual at an individual level um, in terms of a relationship building piece. And once you're able to do that, you're, you don't have to sacrifice any of your core team values because you treat every individual fairly, but you don't treat them the same. You know, you, you, may, you may be able to, you know, chew on a guy that that's, that's how he responds best, but you may have a different guy that needs you to put his arm around him. And so I always prided myself on really getting to know what made each player tick and again, creating, creating a standard, but then within that standard, letting them be individuals. And we would talk about that actually at length. We would say, guys, you look at our team rules. They are not so specific that you can't be yourself. We want you to, we basically, the, the statement that I used was, we want you to be an individual within this set of, within this set of like rules, essentially. You know, I wasn't real big on, you have to wear this or you got to do this. I really felt like when players feel like they can be individuals, it's easy for them to buy into your culture because they feel like, hey, there's a, you know, there, yes, we have these team rules. Yes, we have, you know, kind of the, the culture that we have set, but at the same time, I can be myself within that culture. And I think that's important for kids. And, and I think if kids understand that, A, you're going to treat them fairly, but B, and probably most important that I hadn't said yet, you're going to hold them accountable. <laughs> that I think that's what really speaks volumes um, to the team. You know, right. I know uh, my first year at SFU, we had a situation where 
Um, our starting quarterback was a very good player. He was a Division One transfer. You know, he had started a bunch of games for him, basically two full seasons before I got there. And uh, on our third game, third or fourth game of the season, he was late for the team meeting on game day. And he did not start. <laughs> wow. You know, and, and, and I think that really set the, the, the tone for the rest of the guys. I had multiple players that said, Coach, well, you have no idea how much that means to the team because you're practicing what you preach, right? And, and to me, you, as a coach, you got to be willing to sacrifice potential talent that you're putting out there on the field for the standard that you set. And I think that uh, when you do that, kids understand that, hey, he's going to treat us fair, but he's also going to hold us accountable. And I think account that accountability piece is really, really important as well. Sure. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's not so much that you have a right answer all the time, but that no. you, but that you just ask the question. You know, you're it's it's always like a good guide. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times we get kind of hung up as coaches on trying to uh, at least appear like you know exactly what you have to do in every situation, but a lot of times you're dealing with a lot of gray more than you are black and white. No question. No, I think I think the coaching world is mostly great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it it really is. And I mean, I, I taught for years too, and it's, you know, you're you're taught how to coach and you're taught how to teach in black and white, but then you find out in practice it's all gray. <laughs> yeah, no question, coach. It is it is very gray, and I think the more that you can clear it up in terms of your standards, I think the easier it is for your kids to adapt and um, and, and have a, a sense of belonging. Right. I think every kid that plays team sports just wants that sense of belonging. And if you're able to kind of create a, a space where they know they can be their self, but they also know that we have a standard. And when you don't hold that standard, you'll be held accountable. I just I just found in my experiences that's that's just created a culture where you can you can be hard on the kids. And, and I use the phrase you can be demanding, but they know you're understanding, you know, and I think I think that's something that's really, really important that uh, good coaches do. Good, good coaches are hard on their kids, but they know that they can, um, you know, the, the kids know that they can come to them with any of their problems because they're going to be understanding it at the same time. Yeah. Oh, I'm just writing that down. <laughs> you can be demanding when they know you're understanding. Um, yep. That's a great one. Um, so last question for you, you know, when your players yep. are, are old and, you know, telling their grandkids someday about their time playing college football, and how awesome they were. Um, what, what's the one thing you want them to remember about their time, uh, being coached by you? Uh, I think the number one thing is that I just want, I just want the guys to know I care about them, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that football is the, the vehicle that brings us together. But at the end of the day, it becomes a very small part of the relationship that we've built. You know, I, 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 I still am in touch with guys that I coached the very first year I ever coached. You know, so one of my best friends actually is a guy that I coached his last two years playing football, my first two years of coaching. And, you know, we, we talk at least once or twice a week. You know, I, I have another kid that I coached. Well, he's not a kid. He's a grown man. But another guy I coached uh, when I went to Oklahoma, and he actually moved his family from Oklahoma up here to come coach with me, and him and his family still live here. You know, and so I think that's probably what I would really want anybody that's been coached by me to, to remember is that, you know, I was a guy that cared about him. I cared about him much more than just a football player. And, uh, and, and I also held him accountable <laughs> and I, and I hope that at, at some point they, they talk about, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of discipline I instilled by, um, not by being a disciplinarian, but by setting out guidelines that really outlined 
a way of life, you know, so to speak, you know, just a, a way to conduct yourself. Um, you know, something we, we talked about all the time is, you know, what you do in the dark will always come out in the light, you know, and, and we want you to be good. We want you to base, we want you to do the right thing no matter who's watching. You know, that was a real big thing for us is do the right thing no matter who's watching. And so, yeah, I think if, uh, if, if guys know that I care, you know, would tell someone that I cared about them and, and, uh, and held them accountable, those would be probably the two biggest things that I, I would love, uh, you know, a, a former player to say about me as a coach. Thanks for listening to the Coach Cahill Show. If you found today's show inspiring or helpful, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with a friend. Reviews and ratings are what help us continually attract interesting and engaging guests like the one you heard today. Remember, referrals are the best compliment.